Welcome everyone to the Take Control of Your Health podcast. This is Dr. Mercola bringing you the latest cutting edge interviews to help you achieve optimal health. You can receive more information by subscribing to my free daily newsletter at mercola.com. Thank you so much for listening. So let's get started with this week's latest program to help you and your family take control of your health. Welcome everyone, Dr. Mercola helping you take control of your health and we are going to be dialoguing with one of the best breathing experts in the world. I'm absolutely convinced because I've done some deep training with him and really understand what he's teaching. Normally I have to, or don't have to, but I frequently read a book for the person, but I've actually taken Dr. Peter Litchfield's course um, that he provides or provides, it makes available. Uh, so. I understand what he's doing and, it's, and because of that understanding, it's, I appreciate the enormous value. I've interviewed breathing experts before, many breathing experts actually in the past, and, and no one compares to the, the, the understanding he has of respiratory physiology and its impact on your health. And almost every one of you is going to benefit from listening to this carefully because Virtually very few people, very few people appreciate, as I did, I did not appreciate the prevalence of dysfunctional breathing habits that are typically developed as some type of, some type of trauma, emotional trauma, typically, and, that, and it gets embedded in your brain circuits. And when you encounter this trigger, it activates them and it lowers your CO2 level. and you may have been getting a hint over the last few weeks or months that I really value CO2. It's probably one of the most important molecules in your body. And literally, I'm going to go deep in this in the next year, the coming year. Strategies to increase your CO2 are probably one of the best things you can do to optimize your health. So today we're going to talk about your breathing because it's kind of like having a hole in a bucket, you know, you, you, your bucket carries the water. This, this, this is an, an analogy, of course. And if you if you got a hole, it's dripping. So you got to keep on filling it up. Well, the, the water equivalent would be CO2 and you really need CO2. The, the higher your levels you can get within biological range, norm, normal optimal ranges, the better. Most of us are not even close to that. And here's the key. It's a long intro, but I just want to give my friend because I'm going to let Dr. Litchfield do most of the talking. If you don't understand these breathing habits, the, 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 you, the, that's not where I want to go. If you are, but think you're breathing well because you're belly breathing or you're deep breathing or you're doing butacal breathing, I want to give you a generalized summary. You're likely seriously confused. There's a lot more to it than you want to superficially understand. It, it really goes deep. And Dr. Litchfield is going to help enlighten all of us as to this. So with all that intro, welcome and thank you for joining us. Thank you very much. I'm very pleased to be here. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah and I want to give Dr. Litchfield a disclaimer of sorts. He's still kind enough to participate, but he, he had some international travel. Travel just got back last night and had exposure to a friend of his that's staying with him and he got the flu last night. So he's still struggling a little bit, but, I, but he feels okay. 
And uh, so he he's, normally doesn't talk like this, but he's he had an acute, unexpected surprise. And we could reschedule, but we decided to go forward. So please, cut him some slack. <laughs> All right. I can use that. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Yeah. All right. So, yeah, okay, with dangling participle. Uh, I think the best way to start is to give us a brief summary of your clinical training because your 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 training is in respiratory physi physiology and behavioral psychology which is a very interesting combination and you wouldn't be able to do what you're doing if you didn't have those two two mm -hmm. depths of knowledge under your belt and uh, to combine to just to provide a just a masterful strategy to optimize human biology so why don't you, you tell us about your journey but keep it brief because we want to go into into the meat all right. Where do I start? I basically started in psychology, interested in animal behavior many years ago at the University of Michigan. Then I went from there to an interest in existential psychology, came back into psychology from a philosophical perspective, and then kind of traveled down through personality theory, uh, research around personality, and then ultimately back to physiology. I, I took this long kind of trip through different parts of the field, which has really helped me in a lot of ways, actually. So I'm not just physiological. You know, I'm, I'm interested in the, the, the comprehensive part of what breathing is about. There's so many aspects to it. There's so many things to look at, so many things to explore. It's just a really exciting area. Um, and so I, I did my uh, PhD in experimental psychology and then became a professor of psychology immediately. That was back in 1970. And, just uh, a little while ago. That's a little while ago. I'm 82 that's, now. It's over 50 years ago. That's over 50 years ago. That's correct. <laughs> and, uh, you I got um, your PhD 50 years ago. Congratulations. Well, I actually earned it in 1972. I had my dissertation to finish. You know how that oh, is. So it took me a little bit longer. Yeah. But then I got very involved in the field of behavioral medicine. Behavioral medicine came sort of came online in around 1978, something like that. And I got very involved in that field on the ground floor. and also had a very strong interest in behavioral pharmacology, which has had a tremendous impact on me. A lot of what I do was based on my background, believe it or not, in behavioral pharmacology. Wow. I really learned some very important things there, which we might get to at some point. Um, and then I, um, I became involved. I started up an institute in San Francisco uh, with Chuck Strobel, who is a, a uh, he's a, He's passed on now, but a physician from Yale University School of Medicine. <clears throat> Chuck was a ma major player in behavioral medicine. And um, and then Robert Freed in New York and Ken Pelletier. Maybe you, you know of Ken Pelletier. Mm -hmm. The four of us got involved together. We put together an institute and we, we put on professional education programs in mental health everywhere in the United States. I mean, from Anchorage to Key West. So I was very involved in that for a long time. Professional education was a big part of what I was doing. Uh, and of course, my main interest was in behavioral medicine and ultimately what we call behavioral physiology. And what that's about is really looking at physiology as a programmable system. That the thing that's really exciting about physiology is it self-regulates. It mm -hmm. learns in essence. And it does something and there's a consequence. And based on that consequence, it changes what it does. So physiology collects information, stores information, it uses information on all levels, not just with the brain, but on a cellular level. 
It's collecting data, using data, and so on. And that's what we call learning, ultimately, and what we call really behavior. Behavior is a physiological kind of a phenomenon. But for me, physiology really is psychophysiological because it's a learning system. And whether it's conscious or not, that's enough. You could argue about that forever. But we're not, we're not going to take that up here. But one of the things that's important in the work that we do in breathing based on this is that people need to learn to form a partnership their own, with their own identity in the world with their bodies. That the body is a learning, living system. The day the first cell came into existence, psychology was born. Okay, and so that that is really such an important thing to understand. It's not just you, obviously, who's doing the breathing. Your body is doing the breathing. And it's not just, these aren't just genetic things or organic things. The body gets programmed constantly by virtue of what it does and what, and, and what results from what it does. And breathing is no exception. I mean, you look, you look at the kind of the habits that we learn in our lives. Look at my hands. I'm moving my hands right now. Look at my head. This is this. I learned this unconsciously, and I'm I'm just a whole collection of amazing habits, thousands of habits that come into play just exactly the right time. So the so the right thing happens at the right time, and I don't even have to think about it. That's the nature of a habit, but they don't always go well. They can go wrong, and it, the habits always serve people. There's always, there's always an outcome and it's serving someone. You don't engage in a habit unless it serves you somehow or it serves your physiology. So one of the things that's really important in the work is we talk about our client and we talk about their body and helping them form a partnership between the, the body and themselves so that they explore themselves and learn about the habits that have been learned. They're not generally even aware of the habits that have been learned. So you establish this connection. And in a sense, that's kind of your unconscious. In a sense, it's the consciousness of, of your physiological system that's your unconscious. You claim it because it's in your body. So it's got to be yours and you're not fully conscious of it. So as far as you're concerned, it's about, you know, this is my unconscious. But that relationship is so important to understand. And so what we're really focused on in our work in breathing is we we're interested in breathing as a behavior. We're not using breathing as a technique. You know, mm -hmm. you, te you manipulate breathing so you can relax, or you manipulate breathing to have some otherworldly experience where you dissociate, disconnect, or whatever it is. There's all kinds of reasons that people, you know, bring on board some kind of technique. Is, Our is, work isn't about breathing techniques. Excuse me in, for interrupting, sure. but I just no, want to, no you know, having had the benefit of taking your work, I just want you to emphasize that point because that, my friends, is the crux of what he's teaching. So I want you to repeat it again, maybe say it a little bit differently because these habits are what are unconsciously sabotaging you profoundly, profoundly enough to make the voluntary choice to pick up the phone and call the paramedics to, because you think you're dying because of these voluntary habits. And I'm sure he's going to go into sharing the statistics on that. So this, repeat that again, because it is super vitally important. Well, it, in essence, if you think of physiology as behavior, it's doing things all the time and mm -hmm. it's learning things based on the outcomes of what it does. And one, another thing that's very important, there is a trigger for every habit 
it doesn't just, it's just not there all the time. It shows up at specific time, highly specific times. And this is what you see, for example, in the statistics in the larger cities in the United States, like New York City, Chicago, Los Angeles, that surveys show that about 60%, if you can believe that, 60% of the ambulance runs in these cities are a result of symptoms that are brought on by dysfunctional breathing. And it's not as if this person is breathing dysfunctionally all the time. It's that, that at a particular moment, they breathe this way, then that precipitates these symptoms. They don't understand where they're coming from. They don't think of their breathing. Maybe some of them do, but they have no idea where these symptoms are coming from. They call 911 if you're in the United States, you know, and they end up in an emergency. And what do they get? They basically, after a little while, they go home. Maybe they get a prescription for anxiety or something. Maybe they get a referral. But what happens is that they, this happens over and over and over and over again. I knew, I'm not going to mention names, but a, a man who's extremely well-known, he's passed on now, but extremely well-known in the area of breathing. I mean, everyone knows who he is. Yeah, he's a, uh, you know, a healthcare professional, highly trained, many books and so on, breathing. You know, and he, he, was, he focused on breathing as a physical thing. It's not a psychophysiological thing. There was no learning in any of it. He just practiced doing the right kind of breathing at the right time or something. And it turned out when I first met him that he had been going to the ambulance, you know, almost monthly in the UK <laughs> for help because of the symptoms his breathing was bringing on. Here's this incredible expert at what he does. I mean, he's a really talented man. Uh, and he uh, was a victim of a habit that he learned, but never identified it. And a lot of what our work is about is identifying these habits. You know, what is, what is a breathing habit? What do you look for? So there's many components of it. First of all, there's motivation. Behavior is motivated. When you talk about survival, for example, you know, biologically speaking, and evolution, I mean, survival doesn't, isn't anything unless it's psychological, it's, you know, who wants to survive if you don't want? You have to want to be able to survive. So, it, you know, the, this motivation behind all these different uh, habits that might be tied up with your breathing. And then, then you have to identify the exact behaviors. What is a person doing? Like a person may be aborting the breath. They breathe out, they get near the end of the breath, and they immediately take a breath. They get near the end of the breath, they immediately take a breath. What's happening there? It's a very simple thing. As they let the air out, they start to get anxious. Maybe they even verbalize, I'm worried about getting enough air. I need to, I need to take over the breathing. I need to do the breathing. It's not going to happen. I got to do it. You always, you always hear people saying, remember to breathe, as if you have to remember to breathe. I mean, that's silly. I mean, <laughs> have to remember to breathe? It's yeah. absurd. Yeah. So, so anyway, um, you know, that... That whole end of things, if you look at the at the behavior itself, and there's an aborting of the breath, and there's that emotion embedded in it. And then when the person takes that breath early, they get an immediate outcome that serves them. It reduces their their worry. It reduces anxiety. And air hunger is a really big subject that gets tied up with it. What can happen when you abort the breath and you don't really let all the air out? Then when you go to reach for air, there's not enough. You, you go to reach and then you get claustrophobic. God, I can't get enough air. 
Okay, now you've now you've built in air hunger into the situation, and air hunger is learned. I mean, think of your life. You put a blanket over your head, and you feel like you can't get enough oxygen. Or you put a lot of people put a COVID mask on. They feel like they can't breathe, but they're getting all the oxygen they need. It has nothing to do with oxygen. It's about claustrophobia here. So this person then develops a kind of claustrophobia that's now embedded in that breath. And you'll find people constantly reaching, trying to get that breath. They have air hunger all the time. And they keep, as they breathe out, they abort that constantly, trying to get it sooner, as soon as possible. So you look, you look at into the, the specific behaviors. That's just an example of, of an exhale. You know, uh, there's all kinds of breathing behaviors that we look at when we do this work. And then you have to look at the outcomes. What are the outcomes? How are those outcomes serving those, those individuals? For example, you might be really amazed. For example, some people, when they start to take larger breaths, thinking they're going to get more air, and, uh, and, and they feel like they're in charge and in control, and that keeps them, them going. But what happens is that they lose carbon dioxide when they do that. You know, you know, you really hardly need to take any air in breathing. I mean, for every liter of blood, you can move through your lungs. You can move 20 liters of air. You only need one liter of air. So, you know, it's not really about not getting enough oxygen in, in a healthy person. It, it's about basically what's a very fundamental part of respiration is essentially looking at or um, regulating the carbon dioxide concentrations in the body in various places, like in the brain, you know, and the, throughout the system, you know, that carbon dioxide level, as we'll see, is, ex is so extremely important, that concentration. So now this person is taking these deeper breaths, and when they do that, then you lose blood in the brain that uh, with that loss of carbon dioxide, you get vasoconstriction in the brain. Not only that, but the, the red blood cells and the hemoglobin and the red blood cells, they, they're becoming too alkaline and they don't give up the oxygen as easily as they normally would. So it contributes to an oxygen deficit. So you get constriction of vessels in the brain almost immediately. You get this constriction. Yeah. And, and can I just comment that constriction yeah. is there because the primary vascular purpose of carbon dioxide is it's, it is the primary vasodilator. When right. you have sufficient carbon dioxide in your system, it will open your blood vessels much more effectively than nitric oxide because nitric oxide has a dark side, binds to uh, complex four in your mitochondria and it shuts down your electron transport chain. So ideally you want to do it with carbon dioxide. So there's a huge downside to blowing off your CO2 prematurely through these nasty breathing habits that you have no, most of you have no idea that you've uh, developed. Now, if you get back to the outcome of the behavior, you see this, the outcome here in this case is that loss of blood in the brain, loss of oxygen, loss of glucose, etc., and electrolyte changes that, that occur in the brain very, very quickly that then lead to things like lactic acidosis in the brain cells, that kind of thing. I mean, this is really quick. Most people have no idea that this is going on. Now, what happens to some people, but because of that, you get a lot of emotion in many people. It triggers, you get what we call disinhibition, where emotion is discharged. 
And so some people, it may, depending on your background, who you are, your history, your experience, some people, they get angry. And this may serve them. They can get angry at their wife. They get angry at their husband. They can get angry at the people around them. They can control the people around them by, by becoming negative. And so the way that they get to that anger is by overventilating. So they take these larger breaths. They lose carbon dioxide. They get this vasoconstriction in the brain. They get this triggering of emotion that they need to be able to cope with an environment that's difficult for them. Maybe they've come from very traumatic kind of a background, and the only way they could really cope with it is to get angry. But a lot of times they're really frightened. But when they overventilate and you get that state change in the brain that may then trigger anger. Uh, I once did a demonstration with a woman. I, had, I was doing a class, and I had people divided into pairs. And um, one was a therapist and one was the client. And we had them deliberately lowering the CO2 levels, okay, and then having them bring it back, which is a very important part of how you deal with this. And um, uh, what happened, I, I interviewed this one woman who was a client, and I asked her, I said, well, how did you respond to this? How, what did you get from this? She said, I felt like picking up a stick and hitting my partner over the head. That's how I felt. Okay? That was simply by lowering her carbon dioxide level. Mm -hmm. So whenever she's in a certain situation where she feels threatened, where she can breathe that way, that triggers an emotion that's very useful to her. Because she, she revealed, she was a school teacher, mm -hmm. and she revealed to us that this is how, honestly, she said she controls her husband, she said. Mm -hmm. See, so breathing is really playing a major role in her life, in navigating her challenges. This is a simple example, but the outcome of what you do when you're breathing is really, really important to understand what's happening. And there's really a lot more than just the, the physiology, say the over-breathing part of it. There, there are things like this, that when you overventilate, you get a symptom. You get a physiological change, okay? And that physiological change, people have learned to respond to that change in their own unique ways. Some people, for example, when they get dizzy because they lose oxygen in the brain, when they overventilate, to them, they feel like they're losing control. And they freak out. They don't know what's going on. They can't focus. They don't remember what's going on. They, they feel, you know, unable to function. They're really highly challenged. And they freak out. I mean, they have, they're on the verge of a panic attack. The next person goes, hey, this is, you know, this is kind of cool. Yeah, I really like this. This is really great, you know. And, and so they have a whole different response to it. And so one of the things we're always looking at are these physiological, how people relate to the physiological changes. Like a lot of people think that fast breathing, for example, um, you know, is going to essentially arouse you and may, maybe become anxious or something like that. And the fast breathing isn't a good thing. And the slow breathing is really where it's all at. You know, after all, the slow, breath, slow breathing is about the parasympathetic nervous system. You probably know mm -hmm. about that. And, and, you know, and then the fast breathing, so, oh, that's a, the sympathetic nervous system. So you, you need to get to a sympathetic mode. Well, in reality, when you really look at it, this is just a correlational finding mm -hmm. that people who breathe fast more of them are anxious than people who breathe slow. 
But then you have to ask yourself the question, why do people breathe fast in the first place? When people get worried about not getting enough oxygen, they start doing whatever they can to get more air. They open their mouths, they breathe faster, they do all kinds of things. Okay, so it's, it's uh, the fast breathing is correlated, say, with negative arousal. But the fact of the matter is, is there are lots of people out there who feel relaxed when they breathe fast. They take small, fast breaths, and they feel so peaceful. Like you. Like me. Like right now. Look at me right now. Yeah. So. Yeah, you, you can have really healthy CO2 levels if you breathe fast, if you know what you're abs doing. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, look at the system. You know, there are reflexes that regulate the CO2 level. You know, there are sensors in the brain and the arterial system that are sensitive uh, to carbon dioxide and to the pH of various fluids. You know, the oxygen, the system is sensitive to oxygen in the arterial system, not in the brain, but in the arterial system. And the, and the system, these reflex centers regulate the breathing on this input about carbon dioxide concentration, pH, oxygen, and so on. And, you know, and it wasn't designed to go out of whack because you, go, you get stressed. It wasn't designed to go wrong. If you're challenged in your life, the only time you can breathe well is when you're completely relaxed and feeling good. The rest of the time, your respiration is a basket case. I mean, that's ridiculous. Yeah. Okay. So you can, you know, in working life, for instance, our work, with, we did a lot of work with uh, the special U.S. forces. And that's what they're really interested in is in crisis, people are breathing properly. They don't just implement a breathing technique to make things right in the middle of a challenging situation. In the military, they have to be. They, you need optimal respiration and acid-base physiology regulations, which is what we're making reference to at all times. Breathing is regulating acid-base physiology in your body. I mean, it's it's amazing. Breathing is incredible, uh, and so many people think it's all about oxygen. You got the more, the bigger the breath, the more oxygen you're gonna you're gonna get. When in reality, you're gonna get less oxygen because you're getting all that vasoconstriction. In the, in the coronaries, you know, mm -hmm. in, in the brain, all over the place is what you get. So um, anyway. You, let, 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 let's stop here for and just go sure. and just review the, the sure. acid-base physiology, not in depth, but the reason why it's so important. You mentioned earlier that it's like a 10 to 1 ratio in excess you have, which is your reserve capacity to, to overbreed. And the reason you have that is you may need it. It could save your life. And That's right. you, you need your body has to have the capacity to change your pH almost instantaneously because right. if it didn't, you right. would die 100%. Right. The only exactly. way to do that is through your breathing. So we want to take it there because that's such an important point because people don't, why, do, why, why is this the case? Because you have to have it to survive. Yeah, you absolutely do. Um, see, carbon dioxide forms carbonic acid. And... Um, there's a very, I'm not going to go into it. There's a very, very simple little equation, which is, say, we're talking about your blood. Mm -hmm. uh, the equation addresses how much carbon dioxide is in the blood and how much of a, there's an electrolyte that's very important that regulates uh, acid-base balance in your body also, and it's called a bicarbonate. And it's the relationship between the carbon dioxide and the bicarbonate. Now, the carbon dioxide is controlled by the way you breathe. 
So as soon as you step into the picture, as soon as you start to take over and you take the control away from the reflexes, we don't know where you're going to end up. You might be okay because you can link it. We're always coordinating these things. Like when I'm eating and talking, I'm breathing, right? They, they have to be coordinated and linked. This is behavior. They get linked. Sometimes they get out of sync. And then people are really in trouble. They're struggling. Whenever they eat, their the breathing is all wrong. When they're talking, the breathing goes wrong. They get real lightheaded when they're talking. They can't function. They get lightheaded because they're overventilating. They're constantly trying to take another breath, you know, while they're while they're talking to people. And then they get real, you know, concerned about communicating with people. They don't talk anymore. They withdraw. They don't want to be involved because as soon as they start talking, they just get completely in, in trouble. They have no idea why. So well, it's because I'm stressed or because I have social anxiety or something like that. And they make up a reason like we all do. We all, we all come up with reasons why we have symptoms. But in reality, what's going on there, they're losing carbon dioxide. They're getting completely disoriented, can't function. I worked with a man with a PhD in mathematics once. And when he, I had him overventilate, he could not count backwards by sevens from 200 and he's a phd in mathematics <laughs> and he said to me i can't believe this is this for real this is this real i can't i can't count so here this person is you know they're socializing and they're reaching for all this air maybe they think that's good too they have the whole all the belief systems that we have to address in it all because that causes brings all kinds of issues to dysfunctional breathing but I wanted to get back to that one thing. I was talking about those symptoms and how people learn to respond to symptoms differently. That's something yeah, yeah. that we, we have to address because people develop fears of breathing because of the symptoms. Mm -hmm. that when they overventilate and they get these symptoms, now they're afraid to even think about breathing. They don't want to talk about it. They, would, they, don't, want to, they don't want to attend to it at all because as what? soon as they do, everything goes wrong. Why don't you elaborate on those symptoms? Because that's a key. It'll give people a real good idea if they're suffering from overbreathing. And most of you watching this are. It's sometimes, not continuously, but when you're triggered. Yeah, it, it's um, what I was saying right there, that those particular uh, symptoms, you know, they're not going to kill you. You know, nothing's going to happen to you. So what we do is we do desensitization work. So people... No, but let them know them what the symptoms are. Like headache was one, right? Nausea could be another one. Oh, yeah. My, yeah I, can so, give you, I have a list of symptoms. If you'd like to hear some of them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> just, just let people know because then okay. they have the, the barometer to know if they're, they're, they themselves specifically are impacted by this. And that most likely okay. are. So that when you encounter one of these behavioral triggers that you probably don't know you have, you're That's going to have right. these symptoms. And, and the well, reason I mentioned this is I've treated so many patients in my, my medical career, and I had no idea of this. And, and it's typically the patient comes in, you can't find anything wrong with them, but they're having legitimate symptoms. They're impaired. They're disabled almost. Yes. No one has looked at their breathing. That's no right. one. Right. So these are some of the clues. If you have these symptoms, then you're going to want to find someone who understands this. And that someone who understands it probably isn't a doctor. I mean, well, they don't uh, medical doctor. Yeah, they don't. They don't look at it because they don't think of breathing as a behavior. They don't look at the psychological side of it at all. It's just breathing's a reflex, and you do it the right way automatically. And if you have a problem, you go see a pulmonologist because you know you have COPD or asthma or something. 
But let's let's look at some of these symptoms now. It's really important to understand also that this low CO2 level, there's a name for it. And, and, and this is important. A lot of people think about hyperventilation. Let, let's not go there. This is what we call like hypocapnia. It means too little, hypo, hypotension, hypertension, hypocapnia. That's carbon dioxide, capnia. So hypocapnia means too little carbon dioxide. Now, when that happens, it produces a lot of symptoms of its own, but it exacerbates symptoms brought on by other causes. It may actually trigger the symptoms that are associated with other causes that wouldn't otherwise be triggered. In other words, breathing is like a threshold. It can reduce the threshold so you can get all these symptoms associated with you know, other causes for those symptoms. So it's not that it's either you know, a learned breathing problem or it's an organic problem. These things interact constantly. So let's, let me go over some of these symptoms here because there's such a list of them. It's kind of fascinating to hear this. Uh, first of all, abdominal symptoms, nausea, mm. vomiting. I mean, really seriously, mm -hmm. serious vomiting, bloatedness, if you can believe that. Okay. And in nausea, for example, in pregnancy, mm -hmm. you know, all women who are pregnant are hypocapnic. They have low CO2 levels. And it's always blamed on hormones. Now, it doesn't occur to anyone that there's pressure on the diaphragm that's creating air hunger. Mm -hmm. And we work with a lot of pregnant women who basically uh, raise their carbon dioxide levels and, and symptoms go away because those symptoms aren't necessarily a part of pregnancy. Mm -hmm. They're symptoms of the way that you've, you're breathing while you're pregnant. And then there are symptoms that may be exacerbated pregnancy symptoms by the way you're breathing as well, like brain fog, like women who are pregnant and they go to work and they can't function very well. And so oh, that's because you're pregnant and so on. Well, when they're all hypocapnic, mm -hmm. how are they going to function when all that blood leaves the brain? What are they going to do at work? So a lot of our people who are trained breathing behavior analysts will work with pregnant women, to keep their CO2, learn to keep their CO2 levels up so that they can function. But anyway, let's go on with the uh, list here. Um, autonomic changes, we can talk about acute fatigue. We can spend some considerable time on chronic fatigue and what contribution breathing can make to that, theoretically. Headache, mm -hmm. muscle pain, and weakness. And one thing about headache I would like to mention to you, this is really important. Uh, this, For me, this is really important. Let's say that you have, uh, there's a person who has a high pressure, high stress job. And they get, whenever the stress gets high enough, they get a lot of headaches. And they have to go home, they have, they struggle with it. Headache is a major issue for them. And so then some corporate trainer says, gee, you know, stress is the issue. It's too much stress for you. Meanwhile, all the rest of the people around there might not be, be getting headaches, even though they may be just as stressed. So why is she getting the headache? Okay, and she's getting these headaches. This is, I'm thinking of a particular person, a woman. Why is she getting those headaches? Well, she may go through stress management training. And what happens is she learns to relax. And the probability of the headache goes down. She doesn't suffer from headaches nearly as much. And everyone says, yeah, you see, the cause of the headache was the stress. 
But in reality, in this example I'm giving you, this woman has learned to respond to stress by taking bigger breaths. And when she does, does that, she loses carbon dioxide, she gets vasoconstriction in the brain, she gets hypoglycemia in the brain, she gets hypoxia in the brain, she gets a headache almost immediately. As soon as she relaxes, well, then the trigger for the habit is gone because the trigger for the habit is the stress. So the solution to the problem is to look at the breathing habit so that she can be stressed and not get a headache. If you're working in a high-stress job, you, you know, you can't get a headache. So the idea is you can be stressed and still be okay, you know, from that from that perspective, not be disabled. That's a really, really important thing to understand. That that is the behavioral side of what I'm I'm trying to talk about here. So anyway, going back to this list, cardiovascular changes like palpitations, uh, tachycardia, arrhythmias, angina symptoms, e ECG abnormalities, cognitive changes like Attention deficit, that is going to really bring on uh, issues around that. Uh, learning deficits, poor memory, brain fog. Well, I could give you so many examples of that. Uh, inability to think. Uh, symptoms around consciousness like dissociation, disconnecting from your environment, disconnecting from people. Uh, these are their state changes. There's dizziness, there's fainting, there's confusion, and believe it or not, hallucinations and people who really do this extremely. Then there are emotional uh, changes associated with the reduction of blood flow in the brain, where you can get triggering of anxiety and exacerbate performance anxiety, for example. If you start to breathe that way, you can exacerbate that anxiety. And of course, you're not going to be able to function as well because you can't focus on what you're doing, and then that in itself increases the anxiety. Um, phobia, worry, crying, uh, movement kinds of things, diminished coordination. I could give you lots of interesting cases around in aviation and pilot behavior. Oh, they're overventilating when they're flying. Um, and that's, because you're, that's because you're a pilot. This is true. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, diminished coordination, uh, you know, reduced reaction time, balance and perceptual judgment, for example, in physical therapy. Uh, people give, they do balance testing. That's a big thing these days in, in physical therapy. And a friend of mine who does our work, she's a really a major contributor to the field of physical therapy, demonstrated that when this particular man that they tested, they did a balance test on him, he was an older man, and so they expected he wouldn't do very well, and he flunked. So my friend Denise came forward and said, no, wait a minute. Let's take a look at his breathing. And she looked at his, at his breathing, and his CO2 level was really low. So she worked with him for about five minutes, got it up to a normal level, had him repeat the test, and he had no problem. Hmm. So you look at the, you know, the diagnosis that was made where behavior wasn't considered. It's just mm -hmm. all about, you know, can you walk across the floor and still be standing up? You know, that's that's kind of it. Without understanding the other behaviors like taking over the breathing when you're doing that. Um, then other things here would be around the subject of um, muscles, tetany, hyperreflexia, spasm, muscle weakness, muscle pain. 
difficulty swallowing. I'll tell you, that's a really common one when people go into test taking. They find themselves, they feel like they're going to suffocate. They're going to take a test and they're getting, you know, um, this this very uncomfortable kind of uh, physiological change where they, can, they can't focus on what they're doing while they're taking a test. Uh, very, very common. Um, chest discomfort, uh, then uh, performance like sleep apnea, uh, anxiety, uh, rehearsal problems in athletics where you're trying to, maybe you're a diver and you're trying to rehearse what you're doing as you go off the diving board, but you can't remember what you're thinking about. You can't link together your thoughts. Or maybe it's uh, focusing, you know, in a sport where you're trying to shoot a gun, for example, but you really can't focus very well on the target. This is true of a lot of police departments who have taken up our work, where they, in essence, uh, work with their uh, their cadets to be sure they're not overventilating when they're shooting. Um, other things, tingling in the hands, the lips, numbness, trembling and so on, psychological shifts. This is really very interesting. Personality, self-esteem, changes, memory, and so on. And if you look at something like personality shift, probably you, you've all known someone, you go out and have a drink, and that person has one glass of wine, and they seem like a different person altogether. Completely different person, total personality shift. The same thing can happen with overventilating. You're having a profound effect on the physiology of the brain, and you can see real shifts in personality. Um, respiratory changes like shortness of breath, airway resistance. So if you have asthma and you're worried about air and you try to get more air, you get bronchial constriction. So you get increase in resistance. And maybe that maybe that addresses your your theory about yourself that you knew that you were going to have an asthma attack, that you knew you were going to have these asthma symptoms because you know there are allergens in the air. But what you're doing is you're taking these deeper breaths and you're getting bronchial constriction, for example. So a little bit more smooth muscles, um, like in the brain, in the heart, in the gut. Uh, there's a, some really interesting re research around vision and ocular blood flow and hypocapnia, that is low CO2 levels, some really interesting stuff on that. Uh, placental vasoconstriction, that, you know, that's the number two reason for miscarriages is peripheral, according to these studies, the correlational studies, which are limited in their meaning, but nevertheless, um, uh, you know, the um, placental uh, vasoconstriction can come on easily by overventilating. No question about that. The number one reason is stress. But what is it about stress that causes the problem? Maybe what it is is the person has learned a dysfunctional habit with the breathing, and that's what's that's what's contributing to the to the problem. When you talk about stress, it's really about how you've learned to respond to the stress. Anyway, there you go. That was a pretty good, long answer to my first question. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So there's so many different ways we can go. Uh, yes. I want to bring up two points that we can review. One is the most important point first 
it really impressed me in taking your work because you use a lot of clinical examples and you begin to appreciate that you specifically and the people you train many times, but they may not be as gifted as you, are masterful, masterful detectives of human behavior. You, you've got this down to a science and you know the questions to ask and the patterns to evaluate. And it's, 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 it's just like watching a detective story unravel as you expose and identify what is causing the person's problem. It, it's just almost magical to see you, you do that. And it's so impressive. And, and I'm sure there are many of the people you train have the capacity, but it's, it's something to consider when you have these oddball, bizarre conditions that have many of the symptoms, which is why I wanted to read those list of symptoms, you know, nausea, headaches, vomiting, even. Uh, if you have those, you've got to consider it's a breathing pattern dysfunction and you're going to need some, it's, it, it's nice to know you. The reason we're sharing this is you have to have the data to allow you to identify that this is even a consideration because it wasn't a consideration for me just until very recently. I never was exposed to it like almost every other doctor. And I'm pretty sharp. You know, I look at all these different, but this is, this is not part of the medical curriculum. Respiratory physiology is, but they, they absolutely don't integrate the behavioral component, which is the key, the absolute key to not only identifying, but developing a process that can abort that behavior and, and correct it. So that's one that you can expand. And then the other is, they say, well, how am I going to figure this out? Well, the reason you're able to do that is that you can actually measure the CO2 with a tool called a capnometer and very precisely, very accurately and easily, actually. It's the only not easy part is the cost of the equipment, it's, but it's really convenient. It's not much bigger than a pack of cigarettes, actually. And uh, it, it's, it's, there are a number of them out there, but you've developed one that, uh, that I've used and own, actually. Uh, so. It's, maybe you can just elaborate on that and the process that one would do if you are concerned that you may have a, a dysfunctional breathing habit. Well, being able to measure carbon dioxide is obviously the best of all worlds mm -hmm. if it's possible for you. There are other ways you can look at overbreathing without a capnometer, but it's, it's quite limited. You know, it may be that you're just you're not aware of how you're being influenced. So it, it's very difficult without a capnometer. Uh, but ultimately, you know, the idea is not to need a capnometer. I mean, the idea is you learn, you've learned habits, you identify what those habits are, their components, their motivation, their outcomes, and many other consider your belief systems and all kinds mm -hmm. of things around it um, so that you can, um, uh, you know, learn about who you are from a breathing perspective. And the ultimate goal is that who you are from a breathing perspective is different. You're not the same person anymore from a breathing perspective. It's not about a breathing technique. This is about learning mm -hmm. techniques, about how you become a different being when it comes to the way that you breathe and your habits optimize respiration, your habits optimize acid-based physiology. Now I'm measuring that. If you want to essentially go somewhere to have your CO2 uh, looked at from the perspective of habits that you may have learned, you can rent a device which makes it, uh, you know, more affordable, affordable. Yeah. for many people. Um, but then again, if you have a capnometer yourself, 
or what we call uh, a capno trainer, which is really different in a certain way than a capnometer. A capnometer technically is used in, in medicine, in surgery and critical care, emergency medicine, and so on. But a capno trainer is used to learn about your breathing. Mm-hmm. How are you breathing? How is it affecting you? What habits do you have? How can you learn new habits? That kind of thing. So you can rent these devices and you can also buy them. Uh, there are different versions of them. There are professional, basic and personal versions of them. They're all software based and you can operate these things on your cell phone and on tablets and, you know, Apple computers, PC computers, whatever. Uh, and, you know, really get to know uh, your breathing in de- detail. Now, uh, we do have a book, by the if way. I can, if I could just interject yeah. here about the device. Sure. It's, it's, I don't know the professional ones that have all the computer embedded in the capnometer, but they would be large and clunky and very expensive. But because you're using a different computer, your cell phone or uh, another tablet or a PC or even a desktop, you're able to keep the cost down. And the only the capnometer that you're describing is just it's a sensor device. It allows to, you to input the air into this device and it will accurately identify that and send that information to the electronic device. So it keeps the cost down relatively much lower. I mean, how much more would they be if, that, if you had to deploy that computer circuitry in the device? I couldn't guess. I don't $10, really know. $10,000 probably. But here, here's, here's the device. You can see it's yeah. very light, very simple. You can yeah. put it in a pocket and your, you can monitor yourself while you're sleeping. You can monitor so when you're doing exercise. You can, you know, ch- check out how you're breathing and, you know, challenging situations where you're you're concerned that maybe you, you're getting these strange symptoms and maybe it's because of the way you're breathing. You check it. You can check it out uh, and you can use it in so many different things, whether it's public speaking or whether it's uh, at athletics or, you know, in some professional context, like, as I say, flying an airplane, for example, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it, it becomes a, it, very helpful for you to learn about how you breathe, when and where, and how you can essentially bring that online in a way that optimizes your respiration. You don't want to walk around compromised from a respiratory point of view. There's no point mm-hmm. to this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it really needs to be optimal. And, you know, well, and, Aside yeah. from behavior, there, there, it will definitely seriously impact your biology. Low CO two numbers are not healthy. It will compromise your mitochondrial function. Absolutely, you don't really go into that in your course de- deeply, but that is an absolute consequence. You do not want to do that. You want right. you, this is something you want to take care of for sure. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, you know, it's something if you're interested, you you can really do it. Uh, but you know, it, it involves a commitment. Because it has to do with you being really interested in learning about how you breathe and how it's affecting you. So uh, what breathing behavior analysts do is they help you do that. Now, you can learn to do it on your own. We actually have a book out that can walk you through that uh, where you can learn to do it on your own. I mean, you don't have to have some professional to learn about breathing. Mm -hmm. I mean, anyone can learn about it. It's yours. I mean, you're doing Mm -hmm. it every day all the time. You don't want to be afraid of, oh, my God, I have to talk to an expert to be able to control my respiration. I mean, it's yours. <laughs> you can do what you want with it. So the idea is to try to help you, um, you know, make sense out of that and, you know, optimize your functioning. And so many people just don't realize that they're breathing dysfunctionally and the symptoms that they have. And they attribute them to all kinds of other things completely unrelated to breathing. 
And so yeah. do the healthcare professionals because they don't know about it either. Mm -hmm. They're mm -hmm. they're trying to figure out where these symptoms are coming from, but they don't think about the breathing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the um, you, when you mentioned early on, you implied, but didn't really go into it. And I want to expand on that now because I think it's an important point is that your body knows what to do. It absolutely knows what to do. The only time you get into pro problems with it is when you usually subconsciously override it. Right, with unconsciously override it. It, it, it's happens Sorry, yeah. would be more accurate. Yeah. So uh, that's, that's, the that's the trick. And, and it, I, since I've taken your course in the last dialogue with you, I've engaged in another study <laughs> deeply, very deeply. And one of the core tenets of this study, which is uh, more about consciousness training, is is that you, the the, the one of the core tenets is to trust yourself. Trust yourself. Your That's body key. knows key. the answer. Key. That is so fundamental to everything, not just right. life and and everything. I and mean, that can, is. Can generalize by metaphor to other things. If you can learn to trust that breathing, that right. is going to happen. You don't have to do it. There's a huge impact on people. I've yeah. seen it over the years. It's amazing. And that's, I'm confident, that's one of the reasons why you're so successful at what you do, because that is a core tenet of life. And you're teaching that, and it's changing people's lives because you understand that. Yeah. So yeah, that's, that's totally fu fundamental. That's what we work on is helping people build trust in that system. And that's yeah. what I was talking about at the very beginning about partnering with your body. Mm -hmm. That mm -hmm. partnership is, is, is vital. So you're not a victim of your body. You know, you're in the body. This is who you are, you know, and it, it is, uh, you know, you, you own this. Uh, you own your breathing. You're not a victim of your breathing. And that's often a problem. People think they're a victim of, the, of all of this. Yeah, and I, I, you know, I personally, I just want to share my experience with using the capnometer because I had a really nasty breathing habit. My, most of my adult life, almost my entire adult life, and I don't know how I picked it up, but and I'm assuming it did in the past uh, because of what what happened. But essentially, when I actually I exercise a lot, I've been exercising since 1968. That's 55 years, I think, close to it. And when I would exercise, I would overbreathe, which I think is common. But I certainly it was happening very common, yeah, very and, common. You know, so I, why should I be any different? And when I would when I would measure it when I was working out, my, I would get hypocapnic big time. Now I I probably adjusted to the to the to, to that condition, so I didn't have any significant symptoms. I wasn't impaired in any way, other than my physiology was going south because I my CO two levels were too low. So using having that device and using it while I'm working out and monitoring my CO two levels in real time allowed me to learn how to modulate my breathing. Now I don't need it because I've gone through the experience. And I, you know, you don't have to wear the sensor for the rest of your life. Right. You just right. need to understand the process. And then you, you, your body becomes re-entrained to a new pattern. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And so, you know, and a lot of times, you know, people, these breathing techniques that are out there mm -hmm. generally just don't address habits. Mm -hmm. And they may by, by accident mm -hmm. address a habit and then give credit to the technique somehow rather than understanding it's about some kind of embedded learning that has occurred in the process that fear that fear had was addressed 
but they may think, well, it's the slowness of breathing. It, breathing slow is really good. And so, you know, it, it's parasympathetic, you know, parasympathetic nervous system. And, and that's why it worked. When in reality, what it was about was that you lost your fear uh, associated with the end of the exhale, for example, because of the technique they were using. But people aren't focusing on it that way. It's all physical. They aren't looking at the experiential side of it, which is key to understanding breathing behavior. And you had mentioned that this world-class breathing expert actually was going to the emergency room every month, but there are, yeah, I just, I, I, I'm not unfairly criticizing this technique because I've endorsed it and I've interviewed ex, uh, experts in the field on it with buteco breathing, which is generally regarded as one of the better approaches to this type of breathing technique that you have mentioned. But you shared in your course many examples of really skilled buteco practitioners that that was their full-time job who had serious dysfunctional breathing by themselves. Correct. So why don't you elaborate on that? Because I think that's an interesting sure. point. Well, because because it, it, we're the, not picking up yeah. buteco. They're, they're, almost every breathing technique has this as a consequence of because they're not addressing the behavior. They're not addressing the behavior. They're not addressing the habits. If you don't address the habits, they're still there. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they don't just disappear because you do something else. So when you look at buteco, and uh, buteco can be very helpful to people. Mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. I don't have any doubt about that. But, you know, first of all, buteco really addresses people who chronically overbreathe or have chronic hypocapnia, where they have been, they breathe that way all day long. So mm -hmm. they habituate to a lower level of carbon dioxide. So when you raise the carbon dioxide level, people get uncomfortable. You, you try to bring it up to normal and they get very uncomfortable. They're not happy. And so Buteco addresses that, okay? Uh, but most people with breathing problems do not have chronic hypocapnia. Most of them have acute hy hypocapnia, like those ambulance runs. Those aren't people who are over-breathing all day long. Those are mm -hmm. people who suddenly over-breathe and they have these wild symptoms and they call for an ambulance. So most issues around breathing when it comes to hypocapnia are acute. It isn't chronic. So the first thing is that Buteco is really limited to that. And secondly, you have to ask yourself the question if you're a Buteco worker, which generally doesn't seem to happen in my experience, is where did that hypocapnia come from in the first place? Why is this person breathing like that, that you now have to train them to habituate to a higher level of CO2? How did that happen? What's the history of that? Okay, and if the history is that this is the way I can control, you know, my wife, you know, like I was talking about that school teacher who felt like beating her partner over the head. If that's what, you know, you're overventilating so you can get angry to control your environment, what good is Buteco going to do? That person isn't going to raise their CO2 level. They want it down so they can get angry. You know, so you have to you have to address the motivation behind the behavior and what the outcomes are that sustain it. Just because you can habituate to a higher level of CO2 doesn't mean you've addressed the problem. The problem is the habit. And so it, it, glosses, it glosses over that so that you don't get to that. That's a really important uh, consideration. You want to identify the habit, help the person through it, help them understand where it came from and you know what they can do now about it. And that may have a, a, a significant 
philosophical uh, impact on them as well. Their their belief system about their physiology, the trust, as we were talking about earlier, in their system and so on. So you know it, it's it's limited because you're not addressing history of the breathing. You're not addressing any of the these various factors that we've been talking about. You're just looking at the CO2 level. My God, it's too low. We need to raise it. But the problem, another problem with Biteco is that they don't measure it. Yes. They don't well, measure it. Do, so they, but it's not part of their core curriculum. Right. But some yeah. do, like people we've trained do. Yeah, yeah. Well, we have a lot of people who graduated from our program who are Biteco workers, um, and they measure it. Um, and so you can measure it. And then when you, you think you've been successful with your client, you need to see that the CO2 went up. Mm -hmm. <laughs> if it didn't go up, still down, you weren't successful. Mm -hmm. So it's very important to be able to assess it right from the start. Because when you do, you take it when they do their, their testing, they're looking at correlational findings. You know, you look at this bolt test they have. It's really about, um, you know, if people are a certain way, they're more likely to be suffering with hypocapnia than if they're another way mm -hmm. okay so it's just a correlation it doesn't mean you're over breathing it means there's a significant chance mm -hmm. that maybe you're over breathing so you're not really measuring any physiology you're not really looking at any behavior or anything like that so it's just this technique where you try to build up this this um uh you know tolerance as they call it i don't call it tolerance it's about habituating mm -hmm. to a higher level that's a physiological process Habituation, mm -hmm. there are hundreds, thousands of articles on habituation. It's a well-known phenomenon. It's not just about CO2. It's about all kinds of things. So, uh, but on the other hand, they really do a great job because, you know, when the, uh, the people get into that transition time that's extended, they get comfortable with allowing the breath to, be, to sit mm -hmm. out there for long periods of time so they can build trust. When they do that, and they may find the reflex in it because it's identifying the reflexes was ultimately really builds trust because you can feel it kick in. Mm -hmm. You can find that reflex, then you know you, you've you've won a significant part of the battle, and they and there's a good chance that can happen because of what the Biteco people do. Yeah, and you can desensitize the ang the anxiety and the air hunger can dissipate by doing that. So that's helpful. Yeah. And they teach you to listen to your body, which is just an absolutely exceptional skill and that sadly most people never are able to achieve. But if you can put direct your efforts and make that as goals to really pay attention to what your body's telling you and learn to trust it, it's designed to make you better. And if you ignore it, you're just asking for trouble. You're just asking for trouble. So I, I want to expand a bit on the hospital runs because you mentioned it, but I don't, I think. Many people just may gloss over them. 60%, 60%. Now, what I want to emphasize is that when you pick up the phone and call 911, most people aren't going to want to do that because they know the consequences right. of that. Most people aren't. The, the consequences of that could be medical bankruptcy. It's the most common cause of bankruptcy in the United States because you could get a bill for two, ten, twenty, fifty thousand dollars $50,000 for picking up that phone. $50,000 for an ambulance run. So you are not going to do it unless you think you are dying. I mean, these people are right. severely, right. severely handicapped. There's no way they're going to pay fifty thousand dollars if they didn't think they were dying. Most of them, not some of them. I mean, not every one of them, but almost all of them, I'm sure. So this is a serious, serious problem. It's it's more than half of the ambulance runs are due to this problem. 
So this, this is screaming that this is a huge issue that's pervasive in our population. And virtually no understanding of it. Yes, a tip. Yeah, almost everyone has it. I had it. Right. And it's just, and, and, you know, you can take it to so many places. I mean, that, I mean, it's a huge iceberg underneath that so few people, as you say, are going to call 911. I mean, mm -hmm. it's a very embarrassing thing to do aside from it's being expensive. They don't want to do it. Uh, so, yeah, it's, so it just gives you a sense of how immense that iceberg must be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, one of the reasons I started my site was to identify intervention strategies, techniques that would really help a lot of people that virtually no one understands or recognizes. And the people who do don't really have the skill set to make that widely appreciated. So like, you're the perfect type of person I want to interview because it's you really have a powerful, powerful tool and can help so many people, so many people. Uh, and, and the point I want to uh, mention when I'm remembering too, and I'm, I'm hoping you'll be willing to do this. In the course I took with you, you had a lot of clinical examples. And I think it would be useful to include one with this article. Uh, and I can think of a woman, I think it was, she was 19 years old. And I was, I, I discussed it with you specifically. I was so impressed with the results of that, but it, it does, it illustrates a number of variables. One is that the adept skill at which you specifically navigated her through the process to understand what was precipitating this problem. And the woman was, she was only 19, but she had the wisdom of someone much, much older. She was really, really sharp and figured it out right away, better than almost any of the, of the examples that she had. So if you'd be willing to put that together, you know, the pre, the initial assessment that you provide, and then the post, what she, what the miracle that occurred after your intervention. And this was just like a, but this is that, so I'm assuming that's okay to do that. Sure. Okay, good. That would be really helpful. So I you could can give an example of, yeah. um, and because what it's all about is having a conversation. Yes. And it's about helping people focus on their breathing experience. It's not about looking at an instrument or it's mm -hmm. not outside in, it's inside out. Mm -hmm. So that's how we refer to it. It's inside out work. I help the person explore themselves from a breathing perspective, you know, and you have to keep very centered in doing, cause you can go astray so quickly and easily, you know, mm -hmm. as people, when you talk about breathing, it gets to be very personal, mm -hmm. extremely personal. So we have a form we use. Uh, we have a number of different forms, but one form that we have um, uh, gets a little history that could be relevant to the breathing. And then there's a checklist that we use with symptoms and and then or or uh, physiological changes, whatever you want to call them, deficits, symptoms. Mm -hmm. And uh, and then we look at on that same form uh, the client that I'm talking with. Uh, indicates the situations. There's a list of situations. So they indicate the situations in which these symptoms occur. Because, you know, tingling in the fingers can be for a lot of different reasons. It might not be breathing. Mm -hmm. So it's important that you, one understands that all those symptoms that I listed previously, there's all kinds of things that can bring on those symptoms, not just breathing. Mm -hmm. So it becomes important to, you know, understand when they're 
when they're related to behavior or not. And that mm -hmm. comes out in the conversation. So I use that form to interview them. Okay. And I just go all through the form and I look at, we end up in the first part of the form looking sort of at their history that they describe in some detail. Uh, and so they, they, they're communicating, they're interacting, and I'm asking them questions and so on. And then we get to the uh, checklist, which is really the key here of when, how often they experience these symptoms, where they experience them, uh, you know, how they respond, how they interpret them, what their, their own sense of the, what those symptoms are about, and all of that kind of thing. And we're looking at the CO2 level all of the time. From the very beginning to the end, because the CO2 level will change radically during this time, depending upon the person. And that gives us information as to the triggers for this kind of breathing. OK, because we started I was interviewing, say, this person about a particular thing there. And as soon as we started the interview, her CO2 goes from normal to way down. And I've noticed symptoms on her on the checklist that maybe she gets dizzy a lot and when she gets dizzy she gets frightened so i i see we're talking right now i see the co2 level go down i say do you are you feeling dizzy right now and she says yeah as a matter of fact this is exactly how i feel in this these kinds of situations well look at your co2 level look look what happened here and this is called what we call transactional psychophysiology we're in, we're interacting with the person around their physiology and they're they're seeing what's happening while they're behaving in the way they are and so we explore that together and then we do all kinds of testing together depending on who the person is and what the issues are and a good example would might might be I'll, I'll give you a, a a quick case example but we'll have them over breathe on purpose now this isn't as simple as it sounds there's, there's you need to do it the right way there's a real right way to do it, and there are wrong ways to do it, where you have someone overventilate, okay, on purpose. And what happens when you do that? You start, they start to get symptoms, and they start to get deficits. And you, they're they're there, and they're focusing on their experience. They're not talking. I'm the one who's doing the talking. I'm asking them questions to think about the answers, not to interact with me, but just to think about the the answers to the questions. And I'll ask questions like, are there any emotions uh, coming up right now? Are there any memories that are being triggered right now? Does this remind you of anything in your current life circumstances? Uh, does this remind you of something that happened to you in the past? Or, and I have a lot of information before I do this. I have this form, so I, they're not just random questions. They're, they're really specific. They're about that person and, that, and their lives and what we've uncovered together. And then what often happens is that uh, they're very surprised. I mean, it's amazing what you get when you do this. I mean, it's incredible. And uh, then what often happens is that they're trapped. They can't get out. They're breathing that way, and the CO2 level just simply does not come up no matter what they do. And this is what happens in their real-life situation. When they call they the get trapped. When they call the, the ambulance. Right, they call the ambulance. They're trapped. They can't get out of it, and what the hell is going on? And so on, it's really, really difficult for them. And so we can see that they get trapped and, we, and they, they realize that they're trapped because they can see the CO2 level. I'm trapped. I still have all these symptoms. And then as I work with them and I use certain, uh, uh, certain kinds of experiential paradigms that I implement so they can raise the CO2 level, 
And then all the symptoms go away and they're amazed. Like, my God, I can't believe that. They just disappear just like that. Or someone will say something like, when I, when I brought up their level to help them bring their CO2 level up, they say to me, my God, I, it seemed like I wasn't even breathing. I mean, I feel so much better and, and, and I was hardly breathing at all. How can that be? It's because their belief system was is they weren't getting enough oxygen and they couldn't possibly be okay breathing in these very small kinds of breaths. And in fact, this is what allowed the trap to break open so they could, you know, allow those reflexes to operate, to allow it to trust the system so they get to where they need to be from a respiratory point of view. And this may yeah. all happen in one short session, you know, if you know what you're doing. It's about having a conversation. And I could give an example. Well, let me just interject something while I'm remembering. Uh, you have a rescue uh method available to you when you do these treatments, but you've only had to use it once in your clinical training. Uh, and I think it would be helpful <laughs> to discuss that because many people watching this will not have the resources or not be motivated enough to seek, seek, uh, to seek out the resources we're going to identify in a moment. Uh, and, but it's a good test. And that's the paper bag test. And many people know of it, but, but you have to implement it properly. You just can't take a big shopping bag, a big paper or plastic bag and do this. So there's specific details, but if you breathe into the bag, you will raise your CO2 levels and many of these symptoms will disappear. And you can use that if you have the symptoms you discussed earlier, the nausea, the vomiting, uh, headaches, tingling in your fingers. And if it disappears, it's CO2. You were over breathing. So why don't you discuss right. the if strategy? If it disappears, you know for sure yeah, what's going on. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. You you find like I remember I was skiing one time in Taos, New Mexico, mm -hmm. and I was waiting in line and it was in a hotel. And the person in front of me was complaining mm -hmm. about altitude illness to the hotel clerk. And the hotel clerk said, "Look, you just need a paper bag and you'll be okay." And I said, "My God, this guy doesn't know why he's saying that, but he knows it works." Mm -hmm. You see, mm -hmm. it's not about lack of oxygen. All this, these symptoms that this man was having had nothing to do with a lack of oxygen. It had to do with the fact that he was hypocapping. And mm -hmm. that's, why it is, that's why the paper bag works. Okay, tell us the details, <laughs> the size of the bag, how you use it. Because people yeah, are... First of all, you never want to use a plastic bag. You suffocate. Mm -hmm. Never, ever use anything like that. Always a paper bag. Mm -hmm. And if it's too big, it's not going to work. If it's too no small, more. it's not going to work. Okay. And so generally about 15 inches deep and about six inches wide is what we recommend. Mm -hmm. And, um, but, and then in, in, um, I was trying to think of the centimeters. I, I, I know it in centimeters too, but that's okay. Most are, people here are, are using yeah. the imperial system. Yeah. So. Yeah. That's not a problem. But anyway, so it's very important that it would be porous. You know, mm -hmm. a paper bag is porous. You know, it's you're not going to suffocate. And you put it over your nose and your mouth, and it brings up the CO2 level up to a certain point, and it stops there. Mm -hmm. I mean, I could give you numbers, but it wouldn't mean anything to you because you're not, uh, you haven't been trained to, to know what numbers are the right numbers yeah. and so on. But it'll raise the CO2 level substantially. and uh, typically within a very short time, uh, you know, you're okay. I remember a woman uh, that we met 
in Georgia, in the United States, um, my partner Sandra and I, and she had this irritable bowel syndrome uh, kind of problem with major anxiety around it, major anxiety. And it was, she owned a bed and breakfast place. And so she wanted some advice because she found out what we did. And I said, well, you know, here's some things you could do. There's not much I could really offer her. But one of them was a paper bag. And uh, about four months later, I have the original email. It really is an amazing email. She wrote back and she said her whole life had completely changed. She no longer had to suffer with these episodes. She hadn't had any for months. And she couldn't believe it. But, of course, she was dependent on the bag. Mm -hmm. she, she wasn't learning a new habit. She just mm -hmm. grabbed the bag when she needed it, unfortunately. It's a, it's a pretty safe Band-Aid, though. Right, pretty safe Band-Aid. And inexpensive. <laughs> Very inexpensive. But that was years ago before, you know, the kind of technology we have these days. That's back around 2000 yeah, that, or something that's like that. It's a remarkable story. Uh, <laughs> absolutely remarkable. You changed this woman's life in a simple three- to five-minute conversation. That's <laughs> unbelievable. Yeah. <laughs> but... Um, I could give a simple example of how we do uh, this kind of interviewing. And it's, you know, you probably remember that example of the athlete I talked about who. Yeah, why don't you share it here? That'd be great. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'm going to try to keep uh, any reference to who she mm -hmm. might be out of the picture. But, mm -hmm. uh, but this was an athlete, a uh, very accomplished athlete. And um, she had. Um, a real breathing problem, um, a friend of mine uh, wanted me to see her because my friend said, you know, um, I think maybe what you're doing can, can help. She was her best friend. My friend was a woman and her friend was a woman. And um, so I said, sure, I'll talk to her. And so I had a CO2 device and I went, went there uh, to my friend's clinic and I saw her friend there. And I asked her, so what's 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 your problem? And she said, well, I I miss work constantly uh, because I I can't get enough air and I just struggle getting enough air and I have to cancel all my appointments. Uh, she's a healthcare provider, and I can't I, you know I miss one or two days of work every week. I, I, this is terrible. So what have you done? Oh, I've gone and seen various doctors and I've gotten prescriptions. Uh, that are anti-anxiety. They, they tell me it's an anxiety issue or a stress issue because I can't find anything wrong with me, but I just can't get my breath. I'm just so much, I'm just so much air hunger and so on. I said, well, I, I said to her, um, well, when does this happen? Can, can you identify anything about it? And she said, no, I, I really, I really can't. It happens anytime. Any, I don't know when it's going to happen. And I said, well, you know, you were telling me that you miss a whole day of work. Every time you tell me about this, it's about how you miss a whole day. See, I'm doing, I'm doing, this is the beginning of breathing behavior analysis, okay? And you said, well, you said this happened at the beginning of the day. She said, well, I, you know, I never really thought about that, she said. I said, well, do you, do you have this problem when you wake up? You wake up in the morning, you can't get enough air. She said, no, no, I'm fine. Said, and then you eat breakfast? She said, yes, I have breakfast. I said, what about that? She said, well, I'm fine. But then w when does the problem occur? She said, well, I guess it's just right after breakfast. I never thought about that. Just after breakfast. So somehow eating. It's so simple, right? Eating 
had something to do with breathing. No, she never thought of it. No one had ever asked her about it. Nobody. So now um, I said, and then she said to me, hey, you know, this is, this happens to me sometimes after I have lunch. <laughs> I said, you know, this seems like there's something to do with eating and breathing. And she said, yeah, that's amazing. I've not, I never thought of that. I mean, it's so obvious. So then I said to her, so what do you do? You, you eat breakfast, you can't get enough air, you're struggling, what do you do all day? You just sit around, what do you do? You read books, what do you do? She says she practices breathing techniques to get larger breaths, to get more air, to try to get rid of that air hunger. And she has a, a book that she references about how to do this. And I said, well, does it work? Does it work for you? She says, no, in fact, it gets worse. <laughs> of course it gets worse. Okay, so then I said, um, um, but she also she come in. I had my this capnometer there, and she said, "Well, it's nothing to do with my carbon dioxide." Because I had a friend who tested me, and she tested me, and it was all normal. And I said, "Well, right now it is normal. I'm looking at it right now, and it is normal right now. But that doesn't mean it's normal all the time." She said, "Oh, really?" I said, "Well, let's see, let's see." So I um, them said, would you like to look at your breathing? We'll look at your, your carbon dioxide while you're breathing. And she said, oh, one other thing she said to me, she said, I said, how long does this last? Do you, you know, by dinner time, are you still suffering with the problem? And she said, no. I said, well, what makes the difference? She said, I go and I do a workout at the end of every day. When I do my workout, I, I, I feel great. And I said, you mean to tell me that you're at home and you can't get enough oxygen, but when you go to the gym and you start working out, then you can get enough oxygen? That's kind of interesting. That you can get more oxygen when you're working out than when you're sitting. So she found that rather interesting and she pointed out to me that, you know, maybe what I should do when I have this problem is just go to the gym. <laughs> okay, so it's a different trigger of a different habit. So I sat her down, we were working with a capnometer and I, I said, would you want to do a little work with me? We'll have you overbreathe a little bit and see where it takes us. He said, sure. So I worked with her and I got her CO2 down to what we call a moderately low level. And suddenly she bursts out and says, this is exactly what happens to me. And I'm not going to be able to get out of this for the rest of the day, she said. I said, no, wait a minute, you know, you're going to be okay. You know, we always give people positive feedback. You did a great job getting down here to this low level. And uh, she said, well, I did exactly what you told me to do. And I said, well, I told you to do what you told me you do when you're trying to deal with the problem, and that is to take larger breaths. Isn't that true? She said, my God, I can't believe it. What I've been doing at home is what you just coached me into doing and then and I had exactly the same response. So then I worked with her to get the level up, which we haven't talked about, but to get the level up. And I got it up and she said to me, what I mentioned earlier, I can't believe that hardly breathing at all solved my problem. You know, she couldn't she couldn't believe it. And then she understood why her friend never found a CO2 problem because her friend just hooked her up, connected her and measured her CO2 level as if that's her CO2 level. When breathing is regulated by habits, you see, so these different habits occur at different times. When her friend measured it, you know, she wasn't, uh, the trigger wasn't present. She wasn't eating. 
It's all about eating. So that's a great illustration. And, you know, some people might be skeptical and say, well, you just pulled one of its hat from 50 years ago or 30 years ago. But no, I've seen you do this in new scenarios where the, the, uh, the advisors you're teaching to learn this skill bring in their clients and you help them learn how to do the interview and identify the same thing in almost identical uh, circumstances and it's some novel awareness that they had no clue was triggering this and you identify it through your skillful detective work and then you initiate a program to rescue them or at least help them learn to trust their body that's it that's so it the, the whole system clicks in it goes on automatic control and they they can circumvent the the habit that that triggered this what becomes important is that the hypocapnic symptoms become triggers for mm -hmm. optimal respiration. So as yes. soon as you feel an initial symptom, the system realigns itself. Yeah, it's perfect. It's and just, that's it's, learned. That's a learning thing. Yeah. And you, you wouldn't see. do that if you didn't have a deep knowledge of behavioral psychology. So you merit, you merge those two disciplines together to provide an enormous benefit that, you know, isn't obvious or intuitive at all. And is essentially uh, unknown by the medical profession, unknown. There are very, very few clinicians. I personally don't know any who understand this. They're out well, there, from, but there's not many. So from my perspective, the reason I got into breathing was because this was a way to teach people about how physiology is a learning system. It's a programmable system. Mm -hmm. And we need to look at the programming when we work with people, not just at their, the body from an anatomical perspective, we need to look at how it's been programmed. It's like working with a computer and you mm. don't pay any attention to the software. You just work with the motherboard and all the other components, but you never look at the operating system and the software programs that are on there. Uh, so the idea is that's how, why I got into breathing because it was such a popular thing and it really is relevant to all of us. And that was a way to try to get the word out about the whole subject of behavioral physiology yeah. is that Physiology is a programmable, learning, intelligent system. Yeah. And you've done a masterful job of focusing that awareness onto breathing, which is crucial for all of us. Without it, we'd be dead. So um, very few people watching this will be able to connect with you personally. Uh, but you've trained a lot of clinicians who essentially know this work really well and can help people. And most of this work can be done virtually, so you don't have to travel far to different cities. All of it can be done virtually. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so the way that process works, you identify a clinician you want to work with, and there's plenty of them out there. Uh, and they can, you don't have to, but usually you rent a capnometer so that, and you fill out the paperwork. Uh, I didn't do this because I didn't perceive I had a problem. I just got the capnometer and took your training course uh, and learned it myself. But and I had I had access to you, so I had, a, I had an unfair advantage. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, but essentially, it's available. This process, this intervention, this behavior psychology intervention to optim to correct that dysfunctional breathing is available. It does exist, which is very exciting. It is not. It, it's not inconvenient to implement, and, it, and it's a pretty simple process. So, can I can I mention one of those techniques? 
Um, yeah, I mentioned one season. That yeah. we got, we're getting close to the time we have to leave. Uh, okay. but, well, one technique uh, is very simple. It's called negative practice. Oh, yes. And, practice. and what you do is you become an expert at, the, at performing the bad habit. Mm-hmm. So you're not a victim of the bad habit. You own it. You take ownership of it because you can do it whenever you want to. And if you can do it whenever you want to, you can disengage it. So you learn to do it, disengage it, do it, disengage it. And there are specific ways of doing this. We use biofeedback in this whole process. That's an important part of it. And so then you're not afraid anymore of the symptoms because you can turn them on. You can turn them off. You don't really care. You know, it's not a big deal. Uh, And in that process, you get highly reinforced. Again, that's how physiology works. The outcome of what it does determines what it can do, you know, know, within the potential it has. And so um, then uh, the idea is that there's a positive outcome for restoring a good respiration. On the other hand, it can be much more challenging because if someone is like over breathing to get angry at their husband, I mean, this is a more complex issue. You have to address that. So it can be very simple or it can be quite complex. But nevertheless, this negative practice thing works wonders for people. Yeah, it's public core, speaking or whatever yeah. it is. It's just fantastic. It's the core of the program. So how about you run through the process of identifying if someone's interested in doing this work, as I suspect many people will be, because almost everyone watching it has some type of breathing dysfunction. Now, maybe it's not significant where they need this type of intervention, but most people would benefit. So how do they find someone who's skilled with this? Okay, well, training? what I recommend is you contact, go to the following website, and, and then this website is connected to many people who provide breathing behavior analysis services. And that is very simple. It's www.capnolearning, C-A-P-N-O, learning, Capno learning, carbon dioxide learning capnolearning.org. Ooh, that, remember that org. Don't put .com, org, right, org. Dot .com. You'll end up someplace else if you put .com. That's <laughs> yeah. linked to something else going on. But that's .org is really important. Uh, if you're interested in uh, getting a book about what we call capnol learning, which is really bringing behavioral science, physiology, and technology together, there's also a book you can order. There's a, a journal called the Breathing Science Journal, and you can go there. It's a nonprofit organization, so if you buy the book, it's a, it's a contribution to the nonprofit. Um, and it is, uh, the website is www.the, T-H-E, the, B-S-J, Breathing Science Journal, the B-S-J. So www.thebsj.org. Okay, and then if you're interested in professional training, you want to get, you know, you're a healthcare person and you really like to get involved in this work, what I'd suggest, uh, if you're interested in that, is get the book first and, you know, kind of confirm that this is really what you'd like to do, to be sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe even get the an instrument with it if you're going to be doing that. But if mm-hmm. when you're ready for a professional training, you can go to www.bp. Bravo Papa, bp.edu, hmm. .edu. And there you can go for a, we have a professional certificate in the science of breathing behavior analysis. We have certification as a 
breathing behavior analyst, and we have a diploma program in breathing science, professional diploma program. Again, that's for healthcare providers or people who've had a lot of training. It might be in athletics, it might be in performance mm -hmm. training, not just healthcare. And then lastly, if you're interested in, in an instrument and what that's about, you can go to their site, which is www.betterphysiology.com. And there you can learn all about uh, the instrument and what the differences are between the different options there are there if you're interested. Yeah, for most people, there's essentially it, just a cut through the confusion of the different options there's it's all it's pretty much all the same unit all the different options have that same device you showed earlier the sensor but the only difference really is a software package so one right. base program just connects to your cell phone and nothing else then there's another one that would connect to your computer uh and then one that allows you to what's the the, the, the professional Professional no, 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 no. There's there's oh. two versions of the other one. One well, you, you have the multi personal multi-use multi-user. So multi-user option. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you can only if you're only going to use it for yourself, then that's all you need. If you're going to use anyone else, then you need to put another another uh, that get that option. So anyway, it's pretty straightforward. Um, I love the software. I love the the concept. I love the idea that you put this all together and provided a very very helpful intervention that literally is so less expensive and virtually no risk, no damage. You can't hurt people with this and solve so many of the problems. I mean, I, I it could have been 10, 20, 30% of the people I was seeing. I never knew it. And these are the cases that you just don't know what's going on. You, you know, you no, never figured you, it out. And you think of the cost, just think of what the yeah. cost has been for symptoms that you've been having for years and years and never had a solution to. I mean, right. it's just amazing to me. I mean, I honestly, I still find it difficult to believe those statistics that I present in yeah. various places could possibly be true. It just boggles my mind. How can that be true? Yeah. So <laughs> I, I applaud your efforts to listen to your body, to follow your passion and develop this extraordinary intervention that can help so many people. So good work. Uh, you're helping, helping a lot of people. Well, thank you. I appreciate it.